2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me, well, opposite me if we're going to be strictly geographical about this, is lover of cheese, hater of the word feisty, the constantly cold Thea Lenaducci. Hello, Thea.
3: Hello. Feisty's a flashback.
2: Do you know what it was? I overheard someone say feisty. I thought, oh, Thea doesn't like that word. <laughs> So I have, I've, I've, I've internalised it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, now listen, Thea, over the last three weeks, in an incredibly complicated fashion, we've challenged listeners to review us on iTunes because we want to be more visible and so are attempting to game the system in a shameless but still bookish fashion. So we've asked people to review these things in a variety of literary styles. Haiku, hard-boiled, Shakespearean soliloquy and limerick. You did limerick last week, didn't you? We did,
3: Yeah. And Lucy
2: did a limerick. Yes, on the a... spot. Very good. Was it really on the spot?
3: More or less. More
2: or less. Okay, let's not ruin the magic. <laughs> People have been offering their efforts. Some are really good. So here are a couple of highlights. Are you ready? Chen Rupeng from China decided to combine haiku and hard-boiled fiction to give us collapsed into a sofa, folded like the TLS, chewing gum. A crime.
3: Very well punctuated.
2: This one is incredibly, I really like this one. Metanoia 33 from the US has brilliantly taken a poem by Wallace Stevens as his inspiration. Stig and Thea alone still walk in dew, still by the seaside mutter milky lines concerning an immaculate imagery. If you say on the Hope Boy, man is not enough, can never stand as a god, is ever wrong in the end, however naked tall, there is still the impossible possible freedom books flowers in the moon. (laughs) The podcast who has had time to think enough, the central podcast, the human globe, responsive as a mirror with a voice, the podcast of glass, who in a million diamonds sums us up. Wow. That's, of course, a version of Asides on the Oboe by Wallace Stevens. So, in honour of Metanoia 33, that evil genius, the challenge this week is to adapt any piece of literature of your choice and turn it into a review of this podcast. In the beginning was the pod, and the pod was with God, and the pod was Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, for example. (laughs) That was Genesis. Very bold. Yeah. I thought I'd go hard or go (laughs) home on that sort of thing. Uh, Actually, starting with a Wallace Stevens poem is an extraordinarily literary and recondite way to begin, don't you think?
4: Absolutely.
2: Coming up on the show, we look at the early life of the world's first computer programmer, the woman who took the concept by Charles Babbage of the analytical engine and foresaw its full potential. Ada Lovelace, née Byron. Miranda Seymour has written a biography of her, which is extracted in the TLS. In three years' time, this podcast will be brought to you via a headset, via which we will all appear to be sitting in the same room, no doubt with Thea shivering slightly in the corner. Or will it? Just how seriously should we be taking the virtual reality revolution? tom rackman has the latest and continuing his occasional series of reports from the death row frontline is the utterly admirable clive stafford smith this week in the paper and on here he tells the story of the man who after 20 years of nearly being killed by the u.s state finally won his freedom mother Teresa even features
3: It is often said that women end up falling for, if not marrying, men like their fathers. In the case of Ada Lovelace, the woman Alan Turing described as a prophet of the modern computer for her work on Charles Babbage's unbuilt analytical engine, this was true in an especially peculiar way. The woman we know as Ada Lovelace was born Augusta Ada Byron, the only legitimate child of the peerless weaver of scandals that was Lord Byron. She was in fact named after Byron's half-sister, whom he was rumoured to have had a child by, the previous year. Ada's own love life wasn't particularly straightforward, so it must have come as something of a relief when in 1835, through a friend of a friend, an ideal suitor was found, William King, a well-educated man with a vast Surrey estate. William also happened to be obsessed with Ada's father, Lord Byron. He even commissioned a painting of himself in full Byronic mode and renamed portions of his land after Byron's poems. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the couple's first child was called Byron. As for Ada, when she died of cancer at 36, the same age Byron had been at his death, she requested to be buried with her father. Miranda Seymour, the critic and author most recently of In Byron's Wake, The Turbulent Lives of Lady Byron and Ada Lovelace, has a piece in this week's TLS chronicling the union between Ada and William. And she joins us in the studio now. Hello, Miranda. Hello. Before we get into the whys and wherefores of the marriage, what kind of woman was Ada at the time she met William? What were her motivations in life and in marriage?
4: Ada at the time that she met William was a very wild, impetuous young woman. I was thinking the other day that that wonderful um, title David looked used for his book about Jean Rhys, Jermaine Greer and Sonia Orwell, Difficult Women, or indeed Theresa May by Ken Clark. <laughs> I've been writing about two of the most difficult women I can imagine, and they, they're, they're kind of celebrations of being difficult. They were very independent, very strong-willed, and um, in that way, Ada was very much her mother's child as well as her father's child. I don't think there is any sign at all that Ada was in any hurry to get married. She had attempted an elopement when she was about 15 following a very tragic three years of semi-paralysis, when she'd been confined to her bed. And to me, it seems very understandable that having been kept in this position of just being completely homebound, often in tears, being forced to do her history lessons, lying in bed with a pencil, and she could only go out in a wheelchair. She then went a little wild and ran off with her shorthand tutor. And after that, which was rather firmly sat upon by her mother, but did actually reach America and got into the New York oh. Times there, where they were talking about the scandalous daughter of, of Lord Byron. So I think if one thinks of that, and the mother's anxiety always about Ada's reputation as a baron, it's pretty clear to me that the impetus was always coming from Annabella. But the interesting thing is that Mary Somerville, who was teaching Ada maths at the time and was probably the most brilliant mathematician. Mm, very high-profile tutor. Very. Uh, yeah. Ada was remarkably lucky in her tutors. I mean, she had Mary Somerville and then the marvellous William de Morgan, mm. who did differential calculus and was a very funny, charming, beguining man. Presumably a
3: pointed choice then to have a female tutor after yeah, the audition. The yes.
4: Mary Somerville, who had been teaching Ada mathematics, was very close to Lady Byron. And I think she probably was made aware of Lady Byron's anxiety um, about finding an appropriate husband for Ada. And it was Mary's son, Vorontsov Grieg, wonderful name, but his, his father had been in the um, navy and gone out to Russia and had um, the, Vorontsov's godmother was a Russian, so hence this extraordinary name, very unlike the Somervilles. Vorontsov had been at Trinity with William King and When William arrived back in England in 1833, that's two years before he marries Ada, um, Vorontsov met up with him and was very, very struck, A, by his um, intelligence, his interest in science, his his good humour. He just seemed a very agreeable young man, although 11 years older than Ada. And very intriguingly, apart from being thought to be very rich, although there's quite a complicated story attached to that. He was, uh, as you said, absolutely besotted by Byron. And one of the most curious moments to me was looking at a map in the Surrey Woking History Centre, which is where all the papers of the King family are kept, and seeing this little map where he would painstakingly inked in all the old fields and called them Child's Field, Harold's Meadow, Corsair Patch. Is that, um,
2: is that creepy? I, I, I'm trying to work out how creepy is <laughs> yeah. this, that if you love Byron as a poet, that you are therefore attracted to his daughter...
3: Almost like a collector.
2: Yeah, or, or was it? Was it more? Is it more natural than that? Or am I being? I,
3: incredibly I, I would agree enough?
4: with you, Stick. I think it is a little creepy. Ada was like a kind of trophy yeah. that um, Lord King could not resist, and he was bewitched by that, evidently. And the fact that he'd actually had himself painted in what um, Ada incorrectly called his Albanian costume—it was actually done out, out in Ionia—but it was definitely done as a kind of homage to Byron and that her mother, the first year after they got married, got her painted in exactly the pose of Byron's picture with her, her rather strong Byronic jaw turned to one side um, so that she would you know, look like a Byron.
2: So did he, love, did he love her because she was a Byron or did he love her because she was her, do you think?
4: That's an interesting one. I think both. I think they they met in his mind. They were introduced at the house of somebody called George Phillips, who founded the Manchester Guardian. He was a very sort of wealthy um, textile magnate who Adrian, her mum, had met the previous year when they were touring factories, a very Lady Baronic thing to do. <laughs> and so they toured one of the factories with Phillips. And he threw a party in the summer of 1835 and Ada, interestingly, I mean this is 1835, was sent off unchaperoned to the party and there must have been a kind of a wink and a nudge going on because before you can blink there she is in the arms of Lord King. Mm And there's a terribly funny little early correspondence where she says, I thought it was so delightful to meet a young man whose very first um, question was whether I'd be interested in going to his local church, his family church, <laughs> to see his monuments. And I, th- I thought this was very charming. And you can sort of hear Ada being a little bit tongue in cheek there.
3: Yeah. And they married soon after. And was, was William supportive of her, her career, her endeavours?
4: William and Ada and her mother became the crow, William, Ada the bird, partly because she was extraordinarily emaciated but also very quick and mercurial, so she moved like a little sparrow dancing about and often called herself a sparrow. And her mother, rather implausibly, was called the hen, and sometimes the merry old hen. And the hen and the crow, who loved each other dearly for many, many years and were incredibly close in their concern about Ada and their wish for her to do well, were absolutely at one in their desire to see Ada achieve what they believed she was capable of. And it's really interesting that people who knew Ada, rather than us, who see her through these slightly crazy letters where she says, you know, I'm going to be the greatest singer in the world, I'm going to be the greatest poet, I'm going to turn my body into a laboratory, and it sounds a bit mad. But interestingly, those who knew her never thought that. They somehow saw through that to this other Ada who was very lucid, very clear-headed, Very disciplined. So there there are two women inhabiting the same body. And
2: was she brilliant? I mean, it strikes me that Mm. did they know, did both parties, the mum and now the husband, know she was brilliant and theoretically destined for
4: greatness? They seem always to have known that. And everybody who met Ada gave the same view of her, that she had an extraordinary mind. And de Morgan, who was her second tutor, wrote this amazing letter to Lady Byron after, um, of course, what, what happened was that Ada made friends with Charles Babbage. Um, had no interest in his charming mechanical silver dancing lady, which is what most young girls were meant to love, but she just went straight <laughs> to the little bit of the first um, difference engine and said show me how it works. And then in 1843 with, with Williams' loving support and him proudly inking in the diagrams she was doing which were very elaborate Bernoulli numbers, showing how they would work like an early version of the universal computer was there for all of that all the way through. And de Morgan was too. And Lady Baron, who was always terribly worried about Ada's health, she was um, not only very fragile in health, but very delicately balanced. I mean, almost on the edge of madness, one would hesitantly say, but very febrile. And... Lady Byron wrote to de Morgan a letter which doesn't survive, but clearly what it said was, tell me honestly, what do you think? She wants to go further. She wants to do more than this. Is it safe to let her do it? And de Morgan wrote this famous, amazing letter back saying, really, um, to paraphrase it, I don't think you've quite realised, Lady Byron. I don't think anybody's realised that this young woman has gone beyond any of us. And if she's allowed to, and I think perhaps she should be allowed to, she can go beyond the bounds of the possible. And it would seem, from what Alan Turing said in 1953, when he said, oh my God, this is the woman who predicted the universal computer, that that is exactly what Ada did. She was very lucky,
2: then, in a sense that she had this mother who, well concerned about her health, wanted her to prosper. She ended up with a husband who didn't try and shut her down. She had these tutors who were brilliant in their own right and also encouraged brilliance in her. That's a kind of extraordinary chance
4: that you have all of those factors in play. She, all the way through her life, had, uh, for those times, extraordinary liberty. Um, Her mother, who often in the past has been portrayed as a very kind of controlling and repressive woman, was actually very um, generous in allowing Ada really to do whatever she wanted. And William was extraordinary in that where most husbands would have flipped their lid at the idea of their wife going off, you know, riding with strange married men in Hyde Park, which definitely wasn't done at the time, and going to stay at an incredible place called um, Fine Court in Somerset, where um, a wonderful man called Andrew Cross was doing electrical experiments. I can't think of any other husband of that time who would have packed his wife off there with Andrew Cross and Cross's two sons on her own, no maid, no nothing, and just said, that's fine, that's wonderful, tell me more, this sounds marvellous.
3: But we should say, and I suppose this is probably, we'll have to leave it on a kind of a uh, tantalising opening, but they married in 1835 and um, she didn't die until 1852. So it wasn't all plain sailing from from the marriage on. It wasn't, you know, the start of a particularly sedate life for her, was it?
4: Her marriage was complicated as you say we, we should probably keep some bits tantalising but um, let's say that when Ada went to fine court and met Andrew Cross um, that wasn't the only thing that happened. She she fell in lo- love with one of the Cross sons who had a very, very complicated life of his own and then what happened which was the undoing of poor Ada was in part to subsidise her husband's increasingly delusional building projects. I mean, he he really saw himself as the Pugin of the time and was building these wilder and wilder buildings, but without Pugin's commission. It was just him doing it, usually with Lady Byron's money and then with his own money. And so Ada, hoping to support him, got into the world of racing and it's always been supposed that what she was doing was using a system, because she was a brilliant mathematician. No. But she wasn't. And when I looked at all the little bits of paper that survive at the Bodleian, they're just tips. It's, you know, milady put a you know, 10 to 1 on Hobby Noble in the <laughs> Epsom, 30, well, I hope it's at racing. But anyway, that's what it is. How does she do? Very, very... Volatilely, as it was with it. So, she didn't, a, like, she didn't have a system, but she was just. Pointing. No, but what she did have was this ring of adoring old gentlemen who were completely putting their trust and their money in Ada. And she got her maid, who had been Matt Babbage's maid, to do the bets, placing the bets, because obviously a, a, a Miss Byron or a Countess of Lovelace couldn't go down to the betting shops. <laughs> So the, the maid did that bit. And sometimes Ada, well, it, I think it's always like this with racing, isn't it? Sometimes she did very well. I can't say
3: I know. <laughs> I, I don't know either, but I talked I to a few right? <laughs> I, I even
4: talked to the man whose family, the Zetlands, owned the horse which made Ada start her career, Voltigeur. And Lord Zetland's Voltigeur was the horse that got her going. And it was Lord Zetland's doctor. Who looked after her she was ill while she was there and actually got her into the whole world of bookmaking <laughs> it's quite a story what a fantastic world a that you you've
2: got into uh, just just very fine that i'm interested who do you think needs rehabilitating or promoting more laid, uh, now in, in terms of the current awareness um ada or or lady byron annabella
4: i would not Hesitate for one second about that one. Ada has had her due, and I would dare to say more than her due. She's wonderful. Her mind was extraordinary. She did predict the universal computer, but she didn't make it happen. It would have happened anyway. It's just extraordinary that she foresaw it. And we now have an Ada Lovelace Day, we have an Ada Lovelace College. I mean, there's nothing that we don't have. Lady Byron, at the moment I started writing this book, was still being seen as she was perceived um, ten years after her death, which was as lower than the lowest streetwalker in the darkest corner of the Haymarket, which was what the gentleman of Blackwood said she was. And she's remained in the doldrums ever since. And she was, in fact, um, really, I think, one of the most significant philanthropists and reformers in Victorian England. She changed the whole school system, she improved the penal system, she made many of the lunatic asylums, sorry, the asylums that were then still very cruel and keeping people in chains on the floor. She organised a new system. And I think that she was. As I said at the beginning, a very, very difficult woman. I don't know that I would have relished her as a mother, but utterly admirable.
2: And your book is Going to Rehabilitate Her?
4: I very much hope so.
2: (laughs) Miranda Seymour, thank you very much indeed. I remember when everyone was going to be wearing Google glasses and wander around the place as if in an episode of Black Mirror pointing the internet at everything they see? The same breathless sense of unfilled potential has been hanging around the world of virtual reality for ages. As Tom Rackman notes in a review of two books on VR, it has been part of tech daydreaming for a few decades without yet becoming something anyone might keep in their living room. As computing power improves inexorably, we're getting close to being able to turn dreams into, well, virtual reality. According to optimists, we'll be able to fly or become trout or walk through others' bodies but I don't want to do any of those things is apparently not a good enough counter-argument. Pessimists say people will lose touch with actual reality and wander off into the imaginary ether, gurning and gesturing. So what is really going on here? Tom Rackman joins Thea and me to tell us more. Hi, Tom. Hi there. Um, Firstly, how close to, I suppose, widespread immersive VR are we now?
5: Well, I'd say that we're not terribly close, um, but it depends really who you ask. The fascination with this, as you said, has been around for quite some time, but I would say in the last approximately four years, that thrum of excitement about this being something imminent has increased. And if you look at uh, the tech articles around January of every year since then, they said, (laughs) this is gonna be the year that it breaks through, and it hasn't. And uh, I was just reading an article today saying, saying that, in fact, the um, the that this technology has not sold nearly as well as people had hoped at this point Uh, but I have to be clear before I go on about this of my context in talking about this which is that I am NOT naturally a techie I am NOT an early adopter in fact I'm somebody who tends to to be a pretty late adopter of this sort of techie stuff however What I am really fascinated by is the intersection between culture and technology. And I think for me, that's why this is fascinating. And when it arrives, it's hard to say, but that it will arrive seems quite likely. And when it does, it offers the potential for quite dramatic changes to our culture and that's why i think it should be fascinating to people who who aren't stuck on their their phones or tablets at all times
3: and you 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 went beyond reading the books i sent you didn't you i mean you sort of immersed yourself in the vr world
5: I did. Uh, I mean, uh, I went to a particularly interesting event in Central London. There's a, a place, it turns out, called the Realities Centre. Realities, plural, and they have these meetings, uh, quite frequent meetings that I think anybody can attend. And the one that I went to was pitched as an as an AR VR demo. Now, just a quick side note: of what AR is? So, VR is obviously virtual reality. AR is what people are talking about a great deal now as well which is augmented reality one of the fundamental problems with virtual reality is that it is so immersive that you tend to walk into walls and it has many other technical problems even besides that so augmented reality is the idea of combining uh, the, the 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 setting that you're in and what you can see and so forth with some sort of augmented reality this could be things like google glasses or or other technologies and so that's quite a trendy, uh, trendy uh, approach right now. And this event that I went to was a demo of various um, various developers. There were some venture capitalists as well. It was held in this basement of, uh, of a, a building, as I said, in central London. It was sort of an unprepossessing setting with some unprepossessing nibbles beforehand. <laughs> and then um, around the, the floor of this place, they had these, these demos where you could actually try uh, VR in some of its or in some of its various formulations, uh, which I hadn't properly done before. So that was fascinating. I tried one which was a Google Earth VR, so you can sort of float around the world and look at uh, different extraordinary cities, and another one which was a training program where you put on these goggles and you kneel down before a dummy and you learn how to do uh, CPR on this dummy, but in a, in a scenario of somebody being... Lying on the on the ground in an alley, and you have to come along and, and help them and hopefully save them. And in the process, you you gain not just an experience, but presumably the ability to apply that to real life. So it was very interesting. But you know what what was most striking about it was it had the feel of of kind of um, a nerd gathering around 1996, talking about the internet. That it had this feeling of 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 uh, people who are who are excited about something that isn't entirely evident to the average fool like me. So when I tried this stuff, there were lots of problems. Uh, I First of all, I, I almost immediately started to feel uh, queasy. We, and that's a very common problem with this technology because it's not quite quick enough. So it triggers in the brain a sensation of nausea, which is a disaster, obviously. You're not really supposed to use this stuff for more than about 20 minutes at a time, which limits what you can do tremendously. And besides that, the the cpr thing that i was doing because of another technical glitch it just stopped working in the middle of it so i think that we're at the stage now where people are, are excited about it developers are going crazy with all sorts of of hopeful approaches that could uh, could find the breakthrough app but it's clearly not there yet
3: and presumably the kind of the split is the same as it was in the in the starting days of the internet between those who who celebrate it for its its social potential and those who celebrate it purely for its its commercial potential.
5: Definitely, I, and I think that uh, at the moment, you at a gathering of the sort that I attended, then you have people on both sides of it. You have the venture capitalists whose intent is quite clear, and you have the, the developers who are so enthralled by the possibilities of it that they're, they seem to be coming up by, with ideas that sometimes don't entirely make a great deal of commercial sense. However, I would say that, that the, the, the fact that the internet and all of the billions of pounds and dollars that have poured out of that uh, over the past 20 odd years, I think that because of that, then people are a little wiser to the commercial potential. Um, I think that if you had seen computer geeks of the, of the, say, Bill Gates in his youth era, then they were sitting around just having fun with it. I think you find that coders today They're all thinking about getting to Silicon Valley, about having this startup and about making their first billion by the age of 30. Um,
2: Upside downside here, uh, Tom, what's the positive upside for virtual reality? You talk about the potential to increase empathy or or distract from pain. uh, And then the downside seems to be in the area of ethics. How would you plot those two things?
5: Yeah, I think that the the upside, and the upside is is something that is presented in both these books, particularly the one by Jeremy Bailenson, who's a a leading researcher at Stanford on this subject. And the way that he sees it and that the proponents of VR see it as as this opportunity to connect human beings in a way that has never been available to us before, to present us with uh, the perspective of another person in a much deeper way than we've ever managed. And If you think about it, storytelling has traditionally been a way that we've managed to perceive in an indirect way other people's perceptions of life. But this is a, is something that would allow you to a much greater degree to inhabit it. At least that's the theory of it all. So that's one possibility that is a, on the upside. Another upside of it, and this is already going on, is training. That it is extremely useful in training people, especially for for activities that are very, very dangerous. So if you are unable to or too afraid to leap out of a plane with a parachute for some reason you need to do that or you need to, that training, then you can learn all of those skills uh, without risking your life beforehand. And it's the same uh, for surgeons and for, for other sorts of um Uh, instruction like that additionally it's of it can be of great value it seems uh, to the medical community uh, to patients i mean um, because it has already been used to help burn patients for example to they put on these goggles and they they engage in a game called snow world which um, which transports them to a setting that is somehow much much calmer much less um, horrific than the terrible treatments that they they would be going through it that same time the downside uh, are numerous and i think that um that they're they're very evident not just from one's imagination but also from so many sci-fi movies and and stories of the past the, the, the fear is uh on a basic level that people would become so addicted that this would become such a seductive uh, medium that people would would just give up on the real world and choose the, a virtual world instead but there are some more specific concerns as well. There's one that is is alluded to by Balenson and and I felt brushed by a little bit in his book uh, that seemed quite scary. Which is that his argument is that an experience in virtual reality is tantamount to a real experience. Therefore, if you are uh, if you're playing, for example, a very violent video game, and they already exist in VR, by the way, then You are presumably having an experience of violence akin to having performed that act of violence. And so does that mean that if you kill somebody in virtual reality that you have had the experience of killing someone? Does it make you more likely to, more able to? Could you train yourself to become uh, more effective at killing? There's all sorts of very troubling possibilities not to not to mention all of the other array of of criminal and um socially disturbing behavior that could go on in a setting that would that would give people the real experiences of that so it has promise it has some scary sides too
2: tom well i think that's a that's a very fair summary of it tom rackman thank you very much indeed Thank you. Theo, are you excited about the prospect of uh, virtual reality? Could I wave my flag firmly for not being excited about yeah. it? Yeah.
3: Well, I was, I was just thinking, as Tom was speaking then, how we needed to end that conversation on the sinister note because I think that's what we're both probably thinking. Um, I just... I don't even, I
2: don't like, I don't even like Siri. Well, I've never even like all these people now yeah, get up I in the don't. morning like say Alexa, can open my window, and <laughs> Siri, what what time is it? <laughs> Who does that? I just don't understand this. I've never once spoken to a to a computer, you know. Orally and asked for something, and yet that appears to be. Yeah. Maybe I'm just a disgraceful Luddite. You're obviously a Luddite as well.
3: No, well, I mean, yes, I am. I mean, I would be lying if I said I hadn't once used once or twice used Siri to set a timer. Say, you know, you've got food as all you, over you your you hands, done that, you're, you? You're, you're you know, you're mixing hey. dough or something, or hey. you have Matt's to do. nodding is, the producer. Is, yeah, yeah is, is press it down and say to set a timer. That is the only instance. Have you of you that the, happening? Though.
2: Did you hear that story about Alexa just laughing? Did you read that? <laughs> no. So, there's, so had, Amazon have had to fix this. This is this story came out and everyone thought it was rubbish but it's true because amazon had to fix a bug so alexa is just laughing in a sinister fashion prompted by nothing so you're sitting there and all of a sudden you're ha, 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 as alexa plots world domination and that, so
3: but that's a key into what the people who are programming her are thinking surely
2: well and i do think that the ethical side of all this stuff you know the rise of automation the rise of uh, robotics the rise of virtual reality is at what point Can you lose control over all all of this stuff? Well,
3: surely it all comes down to the same, you know, the same as as is the case with the internet, comes down to who owns it uh, and what regulations are there to to limit their powers. Because otherwise, you know, in in a world where, um, uh, you know, if you're a recovering, if you're an alcoholic, you can can have your data kind of twigged so that you can have alcohol advertised advertised to you on Facebook. Unless that gets sorted out, I can only see worse. VR replicating yeah. that. It's just about who owns it, who who who
0: can make money from it. As
2: ever the lesson is, read a book.
0: <laughs> just read a book. Just read a book. <laughs>
2: Clive Stafford-Smith has spent a lifetime arguing against the death penalty. He often tells stories of despair, sometimes of hope, in the face of the overwhelming power of the state to hold people and then judicially kill them. This week, there is a story of hope, although it comes, as ever, with death row stories, with its fair share of angst, anger and sadness, not least because, as with all of these stories, it starts with a crime, in this case a murder. Joining us with the tale of Billy Neal Moore is the lovely Clive Stafford-Smith. Clive, hello.
7: I don't think I've ever been introduced with the word lovely before. Oh, I think well, we should edit this out forthwith. The,
2: no <laughs> chance. The lovely, I'm going to say it again so it can't be edited, the lovely Clive Stafford-Smith. Um, let's try and go through this story, uh, if we can, Clive. Tell us, go from the, the beginning. What did, this is not a case of, uh, of, of a miscarriage of justice. What did Billy Neal Moore actually do?
7: billy was in the u.s military and he was married at the time and he had a small child and he had signed over his um, money each month to his wife who then went awol herself leaving him with the child and billy was stuck there in georgia not knowing quite what to do Uh, so he and a friend got together and his friend told them about this guy called uh, mr stapleton who kept his money at his house because he didn't believe in banks And after a bit of Dutch courage, the two of them decided to go rob this poor chap. Totally justifiably, Mr. Stapleton pulled a gun on him and started shooting. And Billy shot him five times and killed him. And for that, he was facing the death penalty very shortly thereafter. And he pled guilty within three months. uh, A judge who I had uh, lots of dealings with in Georgia uh, Judge Walter C. McMillan, Jr. sentenced him to death. And that's when Billy found himself on death row.
2: And why was it, well, I want to come to, to Judge McMillan in a moment. Why was he not executed um, relatively quickly? Because he, he was nearly executed 13 times, I, I believe. What, what, what was the process by which he was, he was granted these stays?
7: Well, first, uh, there's the whole U.S. legal process, which was something that Billy didn't understand, uh, but then neither really did his lawyers, frankly. And Billy thought he was going to be executed when his first date was set. And it was a Friday, I think, and he was sitting there waiting for them to come and get him. And they never did. And that was quite a surprise to him. But over the next several years, uh, every time the state of Georgia wants to move the case along, what they used to do was set you an execution date. And then there was a big old battle and you had to try and get a stay of that date. And it happened to Billy 13 times that he came within a whisker of execution back and forth.
2: Tell us what happened with Judge Edenfield, a someone who is uh, sympathetic to Billy and indeed not sympathetic to the idea of the death penalty he he nearly helped him but but ended up not helping him
7: that's right i remember judge edenfield too he was actually a very decent guy he was a federal judge and he didn't like this death penalty stuff and you have to remember this was way back when when there was a big debate in in the us about whether the death penalty was constitutional and uh, so judge edenfield granted billy relief and ordered a new sentencing hearing But unfortunately, appended to his opinion a long exegesis on why the death penalty was just despicable. Um, And, you know, the people of Georgia don't really like federal judges telling them what to do, whether it be desegregating their schools or stopping um, with executions. And so the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, after Billy had been given, you know, hope in in life that he was going to avoid being executed, uh, the 11th Circuit reinstated the death penalty. But that was after years of being on death row for Billy.
2: How did you meet him, Clive? Where what, what, did you two come together?
7: Well, back a long time ago, certainly well, well before I was lovely, um, <laughs> I was a student in America. And I'd gone to America, as any pompous, pretentious, unlovely person would do. <laughs> Uh, You're fooling no one with this, Clive, by the way. You're fooling no one. (laughs) Carry on. I I had planned to write a book. I had come at a very young age to to my own opinions about the death penalty. And I was convinced that the good people of America would obviously read my book when I was 19 years old and uh, see good sense and get rid of the death penalty. And I spent six months. Down in deepest Georgia, um, visiting people on death row and writing a book called Life on Death Row, uh, which will never see the light of day. I really My want son, s- my son I- will get to read it one day and laugh. Uh, and that's when I met Billy. Uh,
2: and, and tell us about Judge McMillan then, because by, by being in Georgia, by, by being around death row, you came to see the work of this judge, this uh, person who was sending, sentencing people to death, but also he admitted calling black people niggers.
7: Well, that's true. Look, I, I tried my second uh, death penalty case in front of Judge McMillan, uh, perfectly amicable guy in a utterly bigoted way. In that case, it was Willie Gamble's case, uh, the prosecutors struck all 10 black people off the jury, using all 10 of what are called peremptory strikes. Back in the day, when I was young, I was a mathematician, so i whip out my calculator and do sort of Ronald Fisher's hypergeometric distribution and announce to Judge McMillan that the probability that uh, this was happening, you know, by chance was 1 in 10 to the power 35 or whatever it was. But McMillan was a racist, and we did eventually get Willie a new trial based on the racism of that, uh, of that hearing. And the charity I was working with then in this and another case... Uh, led by Steve Bryce, a brilliant lawyer who was my mentor, uh, had a, had this hearing. And I remember when Steve asked uh, Judge McMillan if he ever used the word nigger, he said yes. And so then Steve said, um, well, did you, did you call this guy on trial a nigger? Uh, whereupon Judge McMillan refused to answer and We had a big old argument about whether there was a bigot's privilege that allowed him to refuse to answer that. And this hearing went on for ages, and in the end, um, he got thrown off the case. And I'm glad to say uh, it was taken away from him, the right to sentence people to death, because he had, I think Willie Gamble, if memory serves me right, was the 17th person he had sentenced to death.
3: But Macmillan did come to be involved later down the line um, in Billy's case. Can you tell us the story of how Billy was eventually released? Because, I mean, it's quite extraordinary.
7: Well, it was extraordinary. Uh, Billy got rid of his lawyers early on um, and he was faced with a police report about his case, which was marginally longer than the whole transcript of his trial. Uh, And in that police report, it had the names and addresses of the victim's family. And Billy was utterly devastated by what he'd done. I mean, Billy had done it, let's face it. Uh, And he wrote to them apologizing and saying, I don't expect to hear back from you, but I just want to say I'm terribly sorry. They wrote back immediately to say they'd already forgiven him. And this was very shortly after all of this had happened. Uh, and over the next many years, Billy would write back and forth with them every week. And they became very close. Indeed, you know, they they adopted Billy as their own son. What happened in the end was um, Judge McMillan set a date. And, you know, I hate to tar anyone as just all bad. And, and I think McMillan felt bad about doing that because he had to sign an order saying that Billy should be electrocuted. Um, And he sent it with a cover letter to Billy saying, look, I tried to delay as long as I could. I think I bought you a couple of extra weeks, but uh, I'm afraid I had to do it. And at that point, I was in Georgia then, and uh, I was working with with a charity there. And Billy had his execution date, and it was really looking like the last time. Um somehow the U.S. Supreme Court stayed his case, even though there wasn't even a, a, a case in front of him. And Billy w- had been through this whole rigmarole. It was absolutely ghastly of uh, the execution protocol. Where they you know start taking you into your own uh, execution cell and shaving you and all the rest of it, um and he goes back to the row and everyone's cheering and whatever, and he's thinking, you know what's the big deal? I just got to stay for thirty days I mean it's the fourteenth time um and it wasn't until he watched the news that night. And his picture came up. And it wasn't just the normal, you know, UDS, meaning under death sentence picture. It was a picture of him in his military uniform. And this was just after the U.S. had gone to the first Iraq war. Uh, And they showed him in his military uniform and announced that that day, totally unbeknownst to him, the pardons board had reduced his death sentence from death to life. Um, and he wasn't even aware that it was going on he didn't know that and he didn't know that various people had intervened including the victim's family but also bizarrely uh, the pardons board had called mother teresa because mother teresa wanted to voice her opinion and she had told them to just do what jesus would do and do the right thing and and that's what they did amazingly enough
2: and then he's the family still this extraordinary forgiving family then not only having petitioned for him to be pardoned to get a life sentence also petitioned for for that for him to be let out of prison entirely
7: yeah i mean over the years i've had some amazing experiences with victims families in fact i just was having a correspondence with the mother of a child who one of my clients killed, uh, and she was just emailing me this week. And she's one of my great heroes, I I really say. But she was the one who told me the difference between mercy and forgiveness. And she said of that client of mine that she was never going to forgive him. But she did want to show mercy, and she testified on his behalf in his capital trial, which was astounding. But the Stapletons, in Billy's case, did more than show mercy. They really forgave him. And when Billy was given a life sentence, he was going to have to do 25 years total. He had done 17, so he had another eight to do. And they went back, and they said, that's not good enough. We want him out now. And so within a year of coming off death row, Billy was free, and he's been free for a quarter of a century now, which is fantastic. And what does he do now? He's working with an old friend of mine. The first capital trial I ever did, um, where I shouldn't have been allowed in a courtroom, I was very young and unbelievably stupid. Um, I did it with a guy called Jerry Word, who was marginally uh, older than me, but between us, we didn't know anything. Jerry is now very experienced in doing a lot of capital cases, and um, what's, what's going on now is he hired um, our old friend, my old client, to tell everybody who's facing a capital trial that there is hope. So Billy now sits down with people who may be guilty and may be thinking about that they've got to plead guilty to avoid the death penalty. And he's there to tell them, look at me. I was guilty. I pled guilty. Uh, I went through all of this. And I've had a life, too. And it's been extraordinary. And so Billy's able to do a lot of good on every level. He's still friends with the Stapletons. But he's a minister at the same time, and he also ministers on a legal level to people on death row or facing death row. Well,
3: unusual, though it is. For Stig and me, I think we should end on a yeah. note of hope. Yeah, I'm <laughs> going to say, what an
7: extraordinary story. I hate story. to do that. Surely <laughs> we can be a pessimist. Somehow. No, no, no,
2: let's, let's leave it there. The lovely Clive Stafford Smith, I'm just saying it to annoy you now. Uh, thank you very much.
3: And to finish this week, the TLS has joined with the Republic of Consciousness Prize, devised to reward small independent presses for their valiant efforts in publishing what the organisers describe as hardcore literary fiction and gorgeous prose. With the shortlist already announced and the winner due to be revealed next week, our fiction editor Toby Lishtig caught up with the prize's founder, the novelist Neil Griffiths.
6: I wanted to start off by asking, I mean, the, the world's obviously awash with literary prizes. Why do we need this one?
8: two reasons. Uh, I think one is that uh, small presses are publishing uh, an enormous amount of great literary fiction, uh, and often the bigger prizes require some investment from them if they get shortlisted. So there is some scepticism as to whether they should in fact enter their books for uh, the major prizes, Well, because
6: it might may cripple them if they well, have to I, I, get I hit mean, with I costs. think
8: the I think the the man Booker asks for uh, if you're shortlisted, the man Booker asks for around five thousand um, pounds towards their marketing costs. Um, now, you don't necessarily sell a huge amount um, if you're shortlisted. It makes a, it has an impact, but winning is the is the makes the key impact on sales. I mean, I I looked at the figures last year and I think a couple of the the books sold a couple of thousand more, that won't make up your £5,000 um, investment into the marketing. So I felt small presses deserved their own prize. But also, what makes this different, is that most of the money goes to the press, not the author. So we're supporting presses rather than writers.
6: And what are the parameters of the prize on a literary level? What are you looking for?
8: There is two, really. <laughs> One is... We define small presses as fewer than five full-time employees. We have a kind of creative or artistic principle, which is we want the works to be hardcore fiction and uh, gorgeous prose.
6: And do you think that kind of hardcore fiction is being failed by the main presses then? I mean, are they not producing... That kind of thing anymore, or, 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 or to, to a lesser extent than they used to.
8: I think to a much lesser ex- lesser extent. My, my, I was thinking today that you could, if you were to, if you were reading one book, a, a, a one one novel a, a week, for instance, um, you could read high quality fiction from small presses through the whole of the year. That's the le- they're producing that level. You could you put all the mainstream publishers together and you 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 couldn't find 52 novels of literary, literary fiction.
6: Oh, and why does that happen? Is it just sort of simple market economics? Or, or is it was actually more to do with the rise of small presses themselves, of which there are probably more than there used to be?
8: I, my sense is that uh, the economic crash of 2007-8 had an impact on what uh, the literary imprints of the big publishers are allowed to do. Um, the as you point out, the market economics don't don't make any sense whatsoever. With with uh, with uh, uh, the average sales of literary fiction in a, in a single year um, lower than three hundred um, copies. But that's um, really so, shockingly low, isn't it? Yes. Really and so low. so and so, ha- you know, um, how does anyone make any money now? So in a sense, small presses. Are sort of taking up the slack and sucking up the loss because they don't have Jamie Oliver or David Walliams to underwrite uh, all their investment in in literary fiction.
6: How are they funding themselves? I mean, is it mostly just kind of um, cottage industries and, and and people just sort of? I, I mean, it? I
8: think I think a lot of them are are, are barely breaking even. Uh, there's Arts Council funding. I think there's a bit of European funding. Occasionally, a book breaks out, which might. Um, uh, uh, underwrite a few uh, commissions and the prize because we give our shortlist us, each of our six shortlists get £1,500, £1,000 for the press, £500 for the writer that £1,000 is a print run, fewer than 300 sales won't make a £1,000 so actually that's in the kind of micro economics of, of, of publishing, that £1,000 is actually quite a, a lot of money
6: Let's talk about that shortlist itself, so it's... um. Six books, is that yeah. right? And is there anything you can sort of say about the, them across the board? I mean, obviously they're, they're very different sorts of books, but aside from being hardcore literary fiction written in gorgeous prose, is there a way of characterising the sort of books that have been chosen?
8: I'm not sure there is, I well, have to say. That's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, I would say, this shortlist fell out completely naturally, but we do have sh- two short-form collections, two translated pieces of fiction and uh, two English-language novels, so it's it's unlike other prizes which don't um, allow for that those different kind of genre there is there isn't much I mean other than it is <laughs> they kind of fall under the under the rubric of hardcore fiction and literary and gorgeous prose
6: They're fairly experimental would you say yes
8: I mean we, we, we tend to try and privilege things that have some kind of formal invention um, so uh, blue self-portrait um, uh, uh, it, it by has by a, N- Lefebvre Yeah, right ha- um, published by Le Fugitives, has a street has a stream of consciousness feel to it, um, as uh, uh, and as well has kind of quite high level literary credentials. Um, the, the, the 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 protagonist is reading the the letters between Theodore Adorno and Thomas Mann on a on a flight from uh, Paris from Berlin to Paris after she's met a pianist who's composing a piece of music based on a uh, portrait painted by Arnold Schoenberg the composer it's, it's, it's quite highfalutin in terms of its, um, its kind of high art credentials but it's wonderfully moving and charming and brilliant at the same time. So it's, it's
6: not just about being experimental for the sake of it I mean you, these, these books all have to have a kind of a, a kind of core of passion as well yeah,
8: I, For me as the founder of the Prize um, and I wasn't a judge this year, any, any piece of work that, that doesn't have a kind of vibrating human energy in it I feel is 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 stretching form too much.
6: Well, um, we we remain to 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 find out who will win it. I think that's announced uh, on Tuesday. And it is. Um, thank you very much for coming in to talk to me.
2: That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Clive Stafford-Smith, Miranda Seymour, Tom Rackman, Toby Lishtig and Neil Griffiths. Do pick up a copy of this week's TLS or subscribe to us online. If you Google TLS subscriptions and type in pod one in the offer section, you get a good deal. This week, we look at Frankenstein, the Scarlet Pimpernel and gay sex in Berlin. Among many other things, you have been warned. Do remember to review us on iTunes, Adapting Something Literary. Next week, we may be entering the minds of animals to see what we can find. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.